Today on the Scotso Podcast, Pastor Phil is preaching a message entitled, How Then Shall We Live? Which is looking at how we as Christians are to live in this broken world. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale on this cold, wintry day. Those of you who are staying at home in the comfort of your living rooms on your sofa and your pajamas with your blanket and your coffee, we're really jealous right now uh, because uh, it's cold in here. Our, our heat is not working this morning. I was sitting there thinking, so this is what it feels like when you don't pay the bills. Uh, it's a little bit chilly today, but we have gathered together and we've um, gotten out of our homes and out of the coldness of the temperatures around us and come here to gather today. And while it may be cold in here, it is so warm with the fellowship of, of the love of Jesus and the love for one another. It just has warmed my heart on the inside, but I'm still cold on the outside. But uh, we were going to start a series today on the Gospel of John. And there were a number of reasons we were going to launch that series, but due to the weather and the, the load crowds, we felt like we needed to postpone that a week so that we can start next week together with our stronger crowds and with our folks gathering together because the beginning of this series is going to be very, very important. And so as we were kicking the idea yesterday around by many churches were doing all day yesterday, what are we going to do? What are we going to, are we going to open? Are we going to open just one hour? Are we not going to have children? Are we going to have the children's ministry, but we're only going to do it this hour? Are we going to go with John? Are we going to change? So as we walked through that, yesterday was a constant day of decisions and trying to figure out what we should do. And we came down to the, the fact that if we're not going to start with John, then we just need to come up with something different for today. Meaning, Phil, you need to come up with something different <laughs> for today. But as I began to pray about what is it that we can share, I shared a devotion with our staff this past Tuesday. And as I was talking with some of the pastors, they said, man, you need to share that. That was so applicable and so encouraging and yet so challenging at the same time. So what I'm going to share with you this morning is a devotional thought that I spent more time on yesterday, putting more meat to the different points that we're going to look at. And what I want to share with you this morning is something that is so culturally relevant to where every one of us lives and where we are that I think this is a timely message for us. God put this on my heart this past week. And as I began to think about it, I was thinking about some of the books that we read as children. And some of you can remember all the children's books. How many of you, how many of you grew up with the Dr. Seuss books? You know, Green Eggs and Ham, Sam I Am, One Fish, Two Fish, Three Fish, Blue Fish. Doesn't work for colorblind people, but for the rest of us, we, we do it well. And of course, we're told now that that's culturally wrong that we shouldn't be reading those kinds of books. And then there are all kinds of other children's books that we read. And there's one that I was thinking about this past week that really stood out to me. And, and the meaning kind of is something that's applicable for our culture today. How many of you remember growing up with Chicken Little? You remember Chicken Little? Chicken Little. Chicken Little was this fearful, really unwarranted, fearful little chicken that was going around declaring some great calamity was going to happen and destroy everybody's lives. What was the phrase that Chicken Little went around the barnyard saying? Do you remember? The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Now this little chicken is in the barnyard and an acorn falls on his head. Then all of a sudden he starts declaring in this very fearful way that the world is coming to an end. 
Now, Chicken Little was first written by a Danish author in 1823, and his name was Kyling Kluck. That was the name. And then, doesn't make sense to us, but then in 1840, somebody else wrote the same story but called him Chicken Little. And then in 1842, somebody rearranged that story and it was no longer Chicken Little. She was Henny Penny, who was also Chicken Little. And then in 1849, Henny Penny, Chicken Little became Chicken Lickin'. And then in 1960, KFC caught him and chicken licking now is finger licking good. <laughs> and so it doesn't really matter what, what you name this chicken, the story's always the same. Chicken little, henny penny, whatever you want to call it, is going around the barnyard, the acorn falls on his head. He's unnecessarily fearful and he starts giving these unjustified warnings that the sky is falling. He goes to some of his companions. He goes to Ducky Lucky and says, the sky's falling. We must tell the king. We must, we must, we must tell the king. Then Ducky Lucky goes to Goosey Lucy and Goosey Lucy says, yes, we must, we must tell the king. And then they all go to Turkey Lurkey and Turkey Lurkey says, yes, we must, we must, we must go tell the king that the sky is falling. And so they all leave the farm. They go out into the brush in the wilderness going to find the king. And then of course they run into Foxy Loxy. And Foxy Loxy says, hey, I know a shortcut. Here's how we can go and get to the king. So Foxy Loxy lures all of them into his den. And Foxy Loxy kills them and eats them. End of the story. <laughs> what kind of children's story is that? <laughs> really? What is the meaning behind that? And you're like, what? And Disney has rewritten it, and there's a better ending. And now there's a modern version of it that all these little animals, they gang up on Foxy Loxy, and all these acorns fall from the tree, to push them in a hole, and they all return back. But the original story is they all die. And only Foxy Loxy survives. Well, the meaning of the story is pretty clear. Whenever you get caught up into unrealistic, unwarranted calamity and bad news and become fearful of the things that ultimately are not true, the ending is never very well. And boy, are we living in a culture today where there's so many chicken littles running around us. There's so many, it's much fear mongering going around us. There are all of these thoughts that the sky is falling and this is happening and that is happening and people are buying into the fears and they're running with the fears in one direction and in another direction and people are getting confused and in some cases, people's lives are being destroyed. It's happening all around us. But there was a man who just wrote an article a couple of weeks ago from the New York Times. His name is David Brooks. And David Brooks is not one of these alarmist kind of people. David Brooks isn't even a believer. He claims no religious affiliation at all. In fact, he considers himself a secular progressive. But in his article, is it titled, America is Falling Apart at the Seams. And as I read it, I was amazed at what this secular progressive sees in the culture. But then he closes it with a question. He says in his article that reckless driving is rising. The number of altercations on airplanes is exploding. The murder rate in cities is surging. Drug overdose is increasing. Americans are drinking more, and nurses say that their patients are becoming more abusive. 
Teachers are facing more disruptive student behavior. Drug deaths have been rising through, during the pandemic. Hate crimes have surged to the highest level in 12 years. Meanwhile, giving to charitable organizations is on the decline and church membership is now below 50% in the United States for the first time in history. Then he adds this. There must also be some spiritual or moral problem at the core of this. Over the past several years and over a wide range of different behaviors, Americans have been acting in fewer pro-social and relational ways and in more antisocial and self-destructive ways. But why? He goes on to admit that he has no answer. He doesn't understand why America is falling apart at the seams. And yet when you look at the larger landscape and you begin to look at the cultural shifts that have happened in America during the last 30 years, it's not really hard to figure out why we are where we are. You see, whenever you remove objective truth from a culture, that objective truth leads a void. And then the void comes about with people developing their own truth. And when people begin to develop their own truth, then people begin to develop a philosophy of how they should live. And when people develop a philosophy of how they should live, then ultimately their lives are translated from what they believe into their actions, their thoughts, and their deeds. Ultimately, people live what they believe. And when you no longer believe in moral absolute truth, then anything goes. You don't think that's true? Consider some recent statistics. 79% of Americans say people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. That is eight out of 10 people now hold to moral relativism. Believe whatever you want, just so long as it doesn't affect society. But the problem is, is when you remove absolute truth and people are living by their own truth, there's anarchy. And it affects every aspect of society. How about this one? 69% say any kind. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Seven out of 10 people say it doesn't matter about your sexual choices or your sexual activity as long as it is consenting adults. That means this, it could be two heterosexuals outside of the bounds of marriage. It can be a man cheating on his wife. That's perfectly acceptable in our culture today. It could be same sex, same sex marriage. It can go on and on and on. And you know what the movement is moving towards in our culture today? Is the fact that pedophilia can now be seen as an attraction acceptable between a man and a child or a woman and a child. Why? There's no truth. You live your truth. How about this? 61% of Americans support same-sex marriage. That's probably not a surprise to us, but 15 years ago, 62% of Americans did not support same-sex marriage. You see the shift that's happening? The fastest growing religious demographic in America is those who have no religious affiliation. The fastest growing demographic in America are those who are called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. No religious affiliation at all. And then you throw in the other things that are happening in our culture. You know what's happening in Canada is coming our way. 
And what's happening in Canada right now, it's against the law to practice conversion therapy. If you practice conversion therapy, then what happens is you can be fined hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of prison term. What is conversion therapy? Conversion therapy is somebody that speaks against a person's either gender choices, their sexual desires, their passions, and maybe even sexual addictions. If you want to counsel anybody towards biblical morality and you would encourage a person with the same sex attraction to put an end to that and pursue heterosexual lifestyle or if you want to tell a person who has a sex addiction or a person who wants to commit adultery on his wife then if you speak any moral biblical truth into that or even sexual abstinence you are practicing conversion therapy and any person that does that, they're fines to the organizations and prison time for pastors and counselors. Indiana right now has that very law on the books. And it's moving in that direction. And so you look at that and you say, wow. Let me just throw you one more thing out there. This new thing called deconstruction. You've heard about that. And this is what's happening in the life of the church Deconstruction is a movement for people to try to deconstruct their faith. Why? Because they have been damaged by reading God's word. And they've been struggling by certain things they don't understand. Or they've been damaged by the experience of growing up in a church that has moral absolutes. Or they've been damaged by some experience in their life. And so what do they have to do? They have to deconstruct their faith. They have to completely remove it because it has become toxic in their lives. There's one well-known author who has recently stepped away from Christianity. He has deconstructed his faith. And now on weekends, he offers seminars to Christians to come and pay thousands of dollars so he can teach them how to deconstruct the toxic faith that they were raised in. And in doing so, they're liberated and they're free. So you listen to all of these things and you're thinking, man, David Brooks is not a chicken little. America is coming apart at the seams. So what are we, what are we to do about this? As believers who are committed to following Jesus Christ, living in a culture that is literally coming apart at the seams, what do we do? How do we address this? How do we do this? And as Francis Schaeffer once wrote a book entitled, How Then Shall We Live? That's a wonderful question for us. So I want to give you something very practical this morning. As we're walking through a culture that's coming apart at the seams, what do we do as believers? Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to do just kind of an old-fashioned, exegetical, verse by verse, going through a position of what Paul is writing to Timothy. Now, Timothy is in the church in Ephesus and he's pastoring there. Paul is in prison and this is one of his prison epistles and he is writing to young Timothy to give him instruction about how to be a good pastor in a corrupt world. And so it, that while he's writing to Timothy as how to be a good pastor, this is something that's applicable for every person who's a believer. It's not just for pastors. It's for every person who has a desire to follow Christ. And as Paul is writing this, 
he gives Timothy 10 principles to live by. Now, I know you're thinking, Phil's got 10 principles. We got a service at 11. It ain't happening. <laughs> no, and here's why. We're going to go pretty quick through this because every single point is the application. Every point that I give to you this morning is the application of what we are called to do. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read all 16 verses, and then we're going to go back and unpack them, okay? Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times or in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially to those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, and in purity, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which has been given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Father, thank you for these words. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Ten practical things. While you and I are living in this wokeness, silliness, craziness of our culture, what do we do as believers? Well, let me give you, if you're taking notes, they're real simple, and everyone is the application. Number one, don't be surprised by the condition of our culture. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by the condition of the culture that's around us. Now, many of us look out and we act like we're shocked by these things, but they have been coming a long time. And why is it we don't need to be shocked? Look at what he says in verse one. Now, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. He says, don't be shocked. The Holy Spirit is telling us these things are going to happen. And what is going to happen? There will be people who will walk away from the faith. Now, let me clarify something. He didn't say there'll be people who will walk away from their faith. He didn't say there'll be people who will lose their salvation. That's not what he's talking about. 
He says, they will be people who will walk away from the faith. The faith is the body of truth. The faith is the absolute standard of God's word. The faith is the scriptures that we read and we study and we believe. And when people walk away from the faith, as I said earlier, there's a void. What fills the void when people reject the moral truth of God's word? Deceitful spirits and demonic activity. It always does. Do you realize that's always the truth? When we get to a culture where we no longer hold to objective truth, something's going to fill the void, and the spiritual realm is waiting for that to happen. Because what happens is deceitful spirits come in, demonic activity starts taking place, and it's not about the teaching of demons. It is teaching that comes from demonic spirits. Go back to the garden. God told Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you shall die. What's the first thing that Satan says? Did God really say that? He calls doubt. Then he said this, you will not die because God knows the day that you eat of it, you will be like him knowing good and evil. And when Adam and Eve put away the command of God, demonic activity and instruction came in and it led them into separation from a holy God. I want to tell you what's happening all around us and the crazy belief systems that you're hearing and the absolute silliness that you think would never, ever happen is coming from demonic forces. And whenever you and I are living in a culture that does not adhere the truth of God's word, the void will be filled from the enemy himself. And it will be passed down to our children and to their children and every culture that rejects the word of God ultimately leads to chaos, not order. Does that sound familiar of what's happening in our own culture? And then it says this, and the ones who teach it will be liars, hypocrites, and their consciences are seared. The word seared there is a medical term, which means this, cauterization. And to cauterize something is to burn it so much to where it no longer can feel or has any sensitivity of feelings. And the people who began to propagate demonic lies and began to teach these things in our culture, their own consciences become so seared that they no longer are sensitive to what's good and what's right. What's right and what's wrong. And it's no longer wrong to murder a baby because it's women's health. It's no longer wrong to have racism. It might be critical race theory. It's no longer wrong to be able to hold the basic truths of scripture because they've been seared in their consciences and they can't see clearly. That's why Paul says the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so they do not see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. Don't be surprised. When truth is removed, there is the perfect breeding ground for demonic lies that will spread and infect all of culture. Just go and read later 2 Timothy chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul lists all the things of what it looks like in a culture when you do that. 
So don't be surprised. Number two, continue in the truth of God's word. Continue in God's truth. Notice what he says. He says in verse six, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine which you have followed. Here's what Paul is saying. Listen, even though culture is going crazy and they're buying into the lies of deceptive um, um, philosophies from the enemy, you keep walking in truth. You keep walking in the truth of God's word and you plant yourself firmly in it. Train yourself in it. The word train there is a word to discipline and is to be as an athlete that you train yourself to stay in the truth of God's word. And then he says in sound doctrine. And the sound doctrine is just simply rightly interpreting the word of God for your life and for our culture. Which means this, listen, even though the world is drifting away from the truth of God, you dig deeper into the truth of God. Because that's going to be the source of stability for your life. And then he says this. He says, you keep following the truth and the doctrine that you are following. Which means this. There's a certain thing that there's orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is believing the right truth. But there's another thing, orthopraxy. And orthopraxy is living the right truth. It's not enough for you and me just to know the truth. We're to live the truth both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And what we do to combat this culture that is in a handbasket heading to hell, literally, is to walk in truth. And when you and I walk in truth, we cannot be deceived by the lies of our culture. So walk in the truth. Keep growing in the truth of God's word. Here's the third thing. Avoid cultural silliness. Avoid cultural silliness. Notice what he says in verse seven. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. I love that. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. What is he talking about? The word irreverent there means unholy. The word myth means a fable or some kind of story or some kind of controversy that people are getting themselves in. He says, avoid all that. The word avoid literally is a warning that says, stay away from it. Don't engage in it. Don't entertain it. Don't invite it into your home. What is he talking about here? He's talking about those silly things that are going to go through culture, but will not last. It's the the kind of silliness that runs through it and people are not thinking clearly and many Christians jump into them. They might be conspiracy theories. There might be a position on this thing that doesn't last long or this thing. And the, the danger is this. When we get caught up in all these little controversial things that really make no difference in eternity, we get distracted and we get distracted from the message of the truth of the gospel. Stay gospel-centered. When Jesus was confronting the woman at the well, and then he told her about her sinful life, that you are not married, you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with right now is not your husband, you know what the first thing she did? She tried to start a controversial argument. Oh, you say that we worship on this mountain and this mountain, and Jesus sidestepped the controversy and went right to the issue of her heart, her sin, and the good news for her life. 
So avoid all the controversies and the things like that that really get you nowhere. Number four, pursue godliness. This is so important. Godliness. And he says at the second part of verse seven, as he's speaking to Timothy, he says, rather train yourself in godliness. Godliness is one of the most important characteristics of a Christian. Because godliness is where your power is. Godliness is where your testimony is. Godliness simply means that you are walking according to the character and the nature of a holy God. It means that you're going to seek to live according to his will, his word, and his way. And you're going to train yourself in that. Why? Because it doesn't just simply flow out of our hearts. We have to practice godliness which means I make a willful choice of seeking to pursue the character of God in my life. The word train is the Greek word for gymnasium or gymnastics. It means to discipline yourself. It means rigorous, rigorous exercise and commitment to be something that you're currently not. Every athlete for the Olympics they get involved in these rigorous training and they're singly devoted to that cause. And what we are to do is to live with godliness. I want to tell you one of the greatest things of our culture is for a Christian to live in the character of God. We've got a lot of different kind of churches out there today and they're branded all kinds of different things. And there's one church that doesn't have a positive connotation. It's called an attractional model church. An attractional model church is a church that has all the right kinds of music to attract people, all the lights, the flashing, the smoke, the eye candy, the soft messages that make you feel good about yourself and everything's fun and everything Jesus is just going to make your life better kind of thing. And a lot of people look down on an attractional model church. And, and we don't want to be that kind of church. But I believe this, every single church should be attractional. And every single church should be attractional with the character of God among the people who go there. And I think we should be so attractional that people look at our lives that they say, listen, there's something real about those people. There's something different about this culture. They're not buying into the lies that we're buying into. And yet they're happy. They're satisfied. They're joyful. They like me. What if we were that kind of attractional church Godliness not only has benefit for those who are practicing it, but godliness has a benefit for a culture that sees it. And that's where we're called to be different. We're to be like zebras in the middle of a herd of wildebeest. I was in Africa in 2002. I got to preach at a Maasai village with the backdrop of Mount Kilimanjaro behind them. And while I was there, I went on a, a safari. And on that safari, wildebeest everywhere. And I just want to tell you, they're the stupidest animals God ever made. They can't see. They can't smell. One goes this way. If one runs into a tree, 200,000 are going to run into that tree. And if one goes across the river where a 20-foot crocodile is, the rest of them are going to follow. Figuring the number, sheer number of us, I might make it. But in the middle of this stupid herd of animals are zebras. And you want to know why they want the zebras there? The zebras are smart. 
The zebras can smell. The zebras have keen eyesight. The zebras are the ones who are always alert and know where the enemy is. And when you see this herd going crazy and running off cliffs right in the middle of the zebras that keep them stable. That's what we are to be in a culture that's going over the cliff. And godliness gets us there. Number five, I know you're thinking, wow, we might not make it to 11. (laughs) Set your hope on Jesus. Listen, in the midst of this culture, set your hope on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he says, for to this end we toil and strive. Do you hear all the words there? Discipline, train, toil, strive. It's not an easy thing because we have our hope set on the living God Who is the savior of all people, especially to those who believe? Set your hope on Christ. He is our living savior. Set your hope on him. He's the hope for eternity. Set your hope on the one who died for you and who is alive today. Set your hope on the only one who can give you eternal life. Why am I saying all this? Your hope is not in politics. I do think that Christians ought to be in the political process and the political arena, but that ultimately is not our hope. Our hope is not determined by who's in the White House. Our hope is not determined by the political party that we're in. Our hope is not determined on whether a vaccine or a booster or another booster or the thousand booster works. (laughs) That's not our hope, is it? When we live in this world and this world is crumbing all around us and people are saying, what's it coming to? We say, it's coming to the consummation of the kingdom of God because of Jesus. That's it. So as you're watching the world crumble around you, you can walk with this incredible joy and people look at you. What are you happy about? My king's in charge. My king's on the throne. My Savior is coming back. And the moment he does, I'm going to be with him for eternity. In this world that I'm living in right now, that's coming apart at the seams, let me tell you, it's got nothing on me because this is not my home. Hope in him. As you're walking through this perverse generation. Number six, live like Jesus. Live like Jesus. The Apostle Paul speaks to Timothy in verse 12. And he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was probably about 30 years old. Some of you are thinking that's old. When you get my age, that's very youthful. (laughs) Let no one despise your youth. Don't be intimidated. Maybe by your lack of age. Or experience, because godliness never has anything to do with the age of a person. It never does. Then he says this. He says, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Set an example. You be an example to them. How? First of all, you be an example in your speech. Let your speech match what you believe. Speak kindly. Speak with grace. Speak with conviction. Speak with truth. And your conduct. Your conduct must be becoming a child of God. And your conduct must be a reflection of the very heart of the Lord Jesus. Your faith. Faith here means faithfulness. 
Be faithful to the word. Be faithful to the Lord. Be faithful to brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he talks about purity. And the purity here is specifically linked to sexual purity. Be sexually pure in all that you do. Timothy's in Ephesus, which is a pagan world in a Roman government. And sex is absolutely perverted in that culture. But he's saying you walk with purity. And so we are to make sure that we constantly live like Jesus. I love the way Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, you be the aroma of Jesus. You know, if somebody hangs out by a fire and they come to you, you can smell the smoke on them. If somebody's in a botanical garden and they've been hanging out with roses and they walk by you, you can smell the roses on them. If somebody's been in a mechanic shop working with grease, you can smell the grease on them. But when somebody's been with Jesus, they should be able to smell Jesus on us in such a way that they can say, wow, these people live like Jesus. Number seven, walk in your anointing. What does that mean? He's writing to Timothy. He says in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which has been given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. What is all that? When Timothy came to faith in Christ, like every single believer, he is given at least one spiritual gift. And those spiritual gifts in Timothy were observed by the elders of the church. And the elders of the church recognized him and laid their hands upon him before the congregation where everybody said, yes, we see your calling what that means is this. Every child of God has been given at least one spiritual gift. At least one. And that spiritual gift is for you to encourage and to build up other people. And that spiritual gift is to be used because the Holy Spirit himself lives in you. And as you're in this world that's falling apart at the seams, walk in your anointing. What does that mean? Walk according to your giftedness. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. And you should be inviting people into your home where your table becomes the pulpit of their lives. Some of you have the gift of service. You can serve people and let them see Jesus flowing out of you. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Some of you have the gift of evangelism. Some of you have the gift of generosity. Some of you, all the different gifts that are mentioned. Every single person in the church, every gift is covered by every single person or a person in the church. Nobody has all those gifts. But we all have at least one. And as we live in this broken world, we are to live by those giftedness. Number eight, discipline yourself that others see your progress. He says in that verse that we are to continue to grow in such a way that people see our lives being transformed. You have a neighbor who's been watching your lives for years and all of a sudden they're watching the growth of your life and they are amazed at how you are growing. And, and we all are to do that. And then number nine, watch your life. He says, watch your words and your teaching. Watch your life carefully. Why? I want to tell you, I don't like some of the things that comes out of my heart sometimes. I was watching television the other day and there was this political person on. And because I disagreed with that person, I, I just said something that shocked me about that person. It just came out. I went, whoa, where did that come from? You know where it came from? It came from my heart. Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart does the mouth speak. It came from inside. 
And that means this, that we are to watch our lives in such a way. When words come out that are not like Christ, we need to immediately say, oh, that's not like the Lord. Lord, please forgive me of that. Or if I act in such a way that's unbecoming of the Lord Jesus, I immediately confess that and repent of that. And that means we constantly watch our own lives. And number 10, persist in these. Keep doing them. Persevere. That word means to bear up under them, to carry them, to work it out. And every single day of our lives, as we are in this world that is coming apart at the seams, we just simply walk according to these principles. And we keep doing it and keep plodding and keep moving. Let me close with this statement. I wrote this in my Bible this week. The world says the sky is falling and the end is near. The believer says the sun is risen and salvation is here. That is to be our cry. And as you leave here today, you're going into a world that is coming apart of the seams. But you are a child of God who is not. And while the world declares the sky is falling, we can walk with this certain confidence. Nah, the sun is risen. And he is here. And he is your answer. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, you're in danger of constantly listening to the demonic lies of the culture that will lead you further and further away. But this morning... What God is saying to you, no, your hope is found in the living Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. He died on a cross from you. He rose on the, from the dead in the third day. He's alive today, and he's before you and saying, if you submit to me and surrender to me, you can have this hope. Church, as we go into this corrupt generation, we don't go condemning. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus and we walk in truth. I want to challenge you this week as you watch the world crumbling around you to walk with a confidence that you've never known because of the Savior that you do know. His name is Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you for this word. Challenge us. Convict us. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.